1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host of this channel. Today, I'm speaking with Alberto Garcia about his new book, Abandoning Their Beloved Land, The Politics of Bracero Migration in Mexico. This book was published by the University of California Press in 2023. Alberto Garcia is Assistant Professor of History at San Jose State University. Alberto, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the program.
0: Uh, thank you, Rachel. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here today.
1: Let's begin by hearing about how you came to write this book about braceros and how you chose to emphasize the Bajío, a central western region of Mexico that features in many of the chapters.
0: Yeah, well, um, this is a very, I mean, this began as a very personal story for me, um, and it is still a personal story. Uh, I'm the grandson of. Uh, of a bracero. Uh, my maternal grandfather uh, was a bracero. Um, he was one of the first uh, people to leave uh, as a bracero from my family's hometown uh, of Changitiro. Uh That's C-H-A-N-G-U-I-T-I-R-O, uh, just in case if anyone is interested about the spelling, um, which is a, a rural community in northern Michoacan. Um, and he's not the only male relative of mine or male... Um, ancestor of mine who was a bracero. Uh, One of my dad's older brothers was a bracero. I have numerous great uncles um, who were braceros as well. And so, you know, part of, uh, you know, my, the first, you know, my first entry into this or the thing that interested me is, you know, I I come from an immigrant family. I come from a bracero sending family. Um, And one of the reasons why I focused on the Bajío and this is, That region is in central western Mexico. It's the contiguous lands of southern Guanajuato, northern Michoacán, northeastern Jalisco, southwestern Aguascalientes, and southern Zacatecas. Uh, So central western Mexico to the north and to the west of Mexico City. Um, Historically, this is a relatively um, temperate region of Mexico. It's also relatively flat. Um, And at least since the emergence of the silver economy uh, during the colonial period, this has been one of Mexico's breadbasket regions. Um, And so a lot of grain um, and livestock producing estates that have supplied, um, whether it was the silver mines of Guanajuato and Zacatecas, but also um, Mexico City uh, as well. Uh, And one of the reasons why I focus on this region is because I I grew up in the Sacramento region in California, Uh, grew up in a small town uh, there. Um, a, a town that had an increasingly growing Mexican population during the 1980s and during the 1990s. Um, and the overwhelming majority of the Mexican families um, in the town that I grew up in were from this region of Mexico. So their families from Northern Michoacan, like my family, or families from Southern Guanajuato, families from Northeastern Jalisco, families from Southern um, Zacatecas. And many of my childhood friends growing up um their family backgrounds were similar to mine as well. So they had grandfathers who were braceros, or they had older uncles or great uncles um, who had spent time in the United States, particularly in California, um, working as braceros. So that personal connection um, was the first, was my entryway um, into the story. And so there was that personal connection. Um, and then that personal connection, though, led to my initial research question when I began this project as a graduate student um, at UC Berkeley, because this book um, is a revised version of my dissertation. Um, prior to the years of the Bracero program and the Bracero program, which was a guest worker initiative that allowed, I, I should have explained this earlier, I apologize. It's a, it was a guest worker initiative that allowed Mexican men to work in the United States Uh, as seasonal contract farm workers, and they were referred to as braceros. Um, And the program was in effect from 1942 until 1964. Um, But prior to braceros leaving my family's hometown in Mexico, uh, my family's hometown um, was involved in the religious political violence of the 1920s and the 1930s, specifically um, the Cristero War, Um, this uh, movement of conservative Catholic partisans who opposed official anti clericalism, um, opposed land redistribution, um, opposed secular public education. They mobilized um, against the revolutionary governments of the 1920s um, and the 1930s. And, and so, you know, I have grandfathers and great uncles who were braceros, but I have great grandparents, great great uncles. Um, who fought in the Cristero War, who fought on both sides, who fought either as conservative Catholic partisans, who opposed the government, or who fought on behalf uh, of the government. And again, you know, many of my childhood friends, they also had similar backgrounds as well. You know, They also had um, older male ancestors who had participated in the conflicts of the 1920s and the 1930s. And so then I thought to myself, well, is there a connection? Um, Like, you know, is, is there a connection? Did the religious political violence that shaped this region of Mexico in the 1920s and the 1930s, did that then shape the migratory tradition that really took root during the years of the Bracero program? And so, so that's, uh, uh, long story short, that's how I came to the project. <laughs>
1: Your book makes a really provocative point um, early on that this migration of braceros it wasn't only about socioeconomic questions or challenges but that this is a migration that's also about politics Mexican politics so can you talk us through this idea before we start to get into the book's chapters
0: Yeah um, so what I found um, you know and, and I obviously I talk about this in the book I mean I don't discount socioeconomic factors such as, you know, low wages or unemployment or either complete lack of access to land or insufficient access to land um, as the proximate factors um, that influence individuals' decisions to migrate as braceros. And, you know, many of the braceros, you know, the, the wages that they earned in the U.S. as braceros, even though they're low within the context of the United States, they're higher than the wages they earned in Mexico. Um, Many of them then did invest their earnings in Mexico as well. But what I found is that as I was doing my research, and this was research that took place in the National Archive of Mexico City, the AGN, um, also the state government archives of Michoacán, uh, Guanajuato, Jalisco, Aguascalientes, uh, local municipal archives as well, what I found is that often the socioeconomic marginalization um, that aspiring Braceros cited um, in the letters where they explained why they were interested in migrating, there was a political, there was an underlying political factor that caused it. Um, So in other words, like, um, you know, the, the socioeconomic marginalization didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in very, distinct um, political context, very distinct Mexican political context. And so what I found is, okay, yes, um, there would be aspiring braceros who say, well, I'm interested in migrating as a bracero because the only employment options that are available to me in my uh, area, in my hometown, in my area are, you know, a day labor, a day laborer, so no fixed employment. But the reason why day labor." Um, was prevalent in that region is because the local landowners had blocked the redistribution of lands to local rural workers in that region. Um, Others who say, you know, I'm unemployed. Well, the reason that they were unemployed is because they had been blacklisted. Either um, landowners who had different political leanings had blacklisted them from employment. I also found um, in some regions uh, where sugar was cultivated and where you had unionized sugar mills, organized sugar mills, so sugar mills where the workers belong to labor unions, labor disputes would lead to workers being blacklisted or being dismissed from their jobs. Um, Many workers who said that they didn't have access to lands, they had been pushed off of their lands because of the ongoing religious political conflicts, which continued at the local level during the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. So these local conflicts continued. And as a result, uh, rural workers would be pushed off of their lands and they would begin consider migrating to the United States. Also with younger rural workers, younger braceros. Um, so braceros who came of age during the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. Um, by this period in Mexico's history, uh, the governments of the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s were more conservative governments, governments that did not prioritize the redistribution of lands in the same way that their counterparts in the 1920s and the 1930s had. So younger braceros, the reason they didn't have lands is because their petitions for redistributed lands were, you know, falling on, you know, they were just being ignored. They were being ignored uh, by increasingly conservative officials who thought that land redistribution was something that was needed in the 1920s and the 1930s, but no longer needed, needed, excuse me, in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. So there is this underlying, this very powerful underlying political dimension that conditioned the socioeconomic marginalization that Braceros experienced in Mexico before they made the decision to migrate to the United States.
1: So let's see uh, how this works throughout the chapters. Um, so looking kind of at the book's first chapter, um, at the beginning of the Bracero program, uh, selection is in the hands of the Mexican federal government, but it doesn't end up staying that way. So why, uh, why does decentralization start to happen? Can you talk us through how that worked?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the, the federal governments of the 1940s 1950s, 1960s, like, and specifically the 1940s, uh, because um, decentralization of the Bracero selection process begins in the 1940s. The governments of the 1940s, like the governments of the 1930s and the 1920s, they prioritized the centralization of power. They wanted to build up um, federal power, uh, build up uh, the, the apparatus, the capabilities of the federal state. Um, And and so as part of the centralization effort and also as part of a conclusion that the administration that initially agreed to participate in the Bracero program, this is the administration of Manuel Avila Camacho, uh, who was president from 1940 to 1946. Um, One of their concerns when they agreed to the Bracero program is they were worried that the Bracero program would lead to undocumented migration. Um, from Mexico to the United States. Um, in in the decree where uh, the president announced uh, the agreement with the United States, uh, the president actually referred to it as clandestine uh, migration. And so Avila Camacho's administration was willing to sanction migration to the United States, but they wanted to make sure that it happened within the parameters of the Bracero program. So as part of its overarching drive to centralized power and as part of its desire to limit undocumented migration as much as possible Avila Camacho's administration made the decision that all braceros regardless of where they lived in Mexico would have to travel to Mexico City to be vetted there for their contracts and again you know the federal government made the decision that this is what will ensure that nobody tries to enter the United States without a contract, without authorization. Um, but it, it didn't work out that way. Um, there were many who wanted to be braceros um, who simply ignored um, the dictates of the federal government, um, begin entering the United States without authorization. And, you know, much much like happens today, they found employers who were willing to hire them as undocumented Um, workers. Um, So you do have folks who just completely ignore the federal government's instructions. The other thing that happened is that the federal government didn't properly gauge how much interest there would be in migrating to the United States as a Bracero. So what ends up happening is that Mexico City um, and the federal government established a contracting center at the National Stadium and this is a stadium it's no longer there um it's it was um in the Roma neighborhood um so this is um western Mexico City or west of downtown um in Mexico City um but there were so many people who went to Mexico City to try to get contracts that the personnel assigned to the National Stadium um were overwhelmed um they they couldn't keep up with the demand um There were also allegations from aspiring braceros that the personnel only worked for a few hours in the morning. And also there were allegations of widespread corruption um, at the contracting center. There were many officials um, who were found to be exchanging uh, contracts um, for bribes. And so the, the corruption, the official corruption at the contracting center combined with the inefficiency, um, with the uh, with the federal personnel's inability to keep up with the number of people there, it basically made the neighborhood around the National Stadium into something of a powder keg. Um, so you have aspiring braceros who end up sleeping on the streets near the National Stadium so that they can increase their likelihood um, to get in line early in the morning and get a contract you have people who live in those neighborhoods beginning to complain about these aspiring braceros um, from rural Mexico, um, you know, taking over the neighborhood, making it impossible for them to move around, you know, to take their children to school in the mornings. And then the aspiring braceros themselves get increasingly frustrated with the inefficiency. They become increasingly frustrated with the corruption um, uh, at, at the contracting center. And so in February 1944, um, there there is a, a violent disturbance, a violent altercation that occurs at the National Stadium, because a group of aspiring braceros were able to cut the line because they had made uh, they had paid a bribe. Um, so they cut the line. Everyone gets upset. Uh, the aspiring braceros try to force their way into the stadium. Um, that leads to violence. That leads to some of the federal personnel at the contracting center. Um, drawing uh, weapons and firing on the protesting crowd. Um, And once that happens, the federal government basically realizes, um, okay, this did not work out. Um, You know, this didn't work out. People are ignoring our instructions and entering the U.S.'s undocumented braceros. Um, We've lost control at the national stadium. So after the violence of February of early 1944, you begin to see uh, recruitment and selection responsibilities delegated to state governments. Um, And the only power that the federal government, at least in terms of the recruitment and selection of braceros, the only power that the federal government retained for itself was deciding how many contracts each state government would receive to distribute. Um, And because popular demand for contracts was higher in the states of uh, in the Bajio state, so Aguascalientes, Guanajuato, Jalisco, Michoacán, Zacatecas, the plurality of the contracts were sent there. Um, Anywhere between 40 and 50 percent of the contracts, it depended on the year. Um, And, and this is a disproportionate share because only about 20 percent of Mexico's population lives in those states.
1: So when the state governments in the Bajío region um, take on the the work of actually giving out these contracts, what do they imagine that this process is going to be like? How do they want to select people? And are they able to carry it out in the way that they plan? The
0: the state governments are they never wanted this responsibility. Um, So I, I never during my research. I never found any evidence that the state governments asked for the responsibility. So they are delegated a responsibility that they do not want and they are concerned. They are afraid that they will lose control in the same way that the federal government did. Um, because almost immediately in 1944, when you see the first provincial, um, recruitment and selection and contract distribution centers open um, in in cities like Irapuato, that's a city in Guanajuato, um, in Zacatecas City, again, you know, you see many of the same problems that occurred in Mexico City and that the demand, the interest in migrating is so high that the cities are overwhelmed. A- and, um, you know, Guanajuato state government almost immediately uh, is worried about, you um, inconvenient agglomerations and breakneck mobilizations of rural workers to Irapuato. Um, so they, they want to maintain order at the contract distribution sites above all else. Um, and they, state officials, make the determination that the best way to maintain order at the contract distribution sites, at the recruitment and selection sites, is to further decentralize the selection process. So to have um, aspiring braceros chosen um, by municipal governments, and in Mexico, a municipality, a municipal government, it's roughly the equivalent of a county government um, here in the United States. And and so state governments very quickly um, told their municipal counterparts, okay, like, You know, the the state government received, let's say, for example, the state government, a state government receives 1,000 contracts from the federal government. And then the state government went to the municipal government and said, okay, well, we're going to give you 100 of those 1,000. You choose the 100 workers who get them. And then you just give them a card. And then they'll come to the contracting center and exchange the card for the contract. So the state governments wanted. The aspiring braceros to be in the contracting center sites for as little time as possible to minimize the possibility of disturbances, to minimize the possibility of violence, like what had occurred in Mexico City. So they decentralize uh, the selection process. And there are, and one of the curious things is that they really are fully committed to this. Um, even in years when the state government tries to give preference to specific workers. Um, so, for example, um, in, in the mid-1940s, there was a volcanic eruption in central Michoacan. Uh, this is the Paricutin volcanic eruption. Uh, Paricutin is a volcano. It's now extinct. It's in central Michoacan. Uh, this is south of the Bajio. Um, so, so south of the Bajio. Um, the significant volcanic eruption. Uh, 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 the volcano continually erupted for approximately nine, ten years. Um, so, which led to farmland in the region being covered, um, you know, by ash and by lava. And so, there were a few years when the state government in Michoacan said, "Okay, well, we're going to set aside um, X number of contracts um, for people who have whose lands have been affected by the volcanic eruption." And so they would send uh, the contracts, they would assign the contracts to that region, but then the state government wouldn't actually follow up to see if their instructions were being followed. Um, and and so they would make the allocation, but they're so afraid, they're so worried that they will suffer political blowback if they get involved, um, that they just, you know, send the contracts, don't follow up, even as they're getting reports that uh, the contracts are not being given to folks who are impacted by the volcanic eruption. At about the same time, and this is in the Bajio itself, um, the Bajio in 1947 suffered from a, a hoof-and-mouth disease, out, a foot-and-mouth disease outbreak, excuse me, um, that affected the livestock population. Uh, and foot-and-mouth disease, um, this is a, a viral infection that affects, um, it can affect cattle, um, it can affect pigs, sheep, goats, um, it basically uh, leads to fevers and blisters um, in infected animals. Um, and, and animals who recover um, are, are permanently debilitated. So, for example, uh, a dairy cow, if it's afflicted with foot and mouth disease, if it recovers, um, it no longer produces milk. Or if it does produce milk, it's nowhere near as much milk um, as it used to produce. So you have this outbreak in the Bajío, um, in 1947 that's affecting the livestock population. Um, and, and one of the policies uh, that the federal government in, implements, excuse me, um, to combat the outbreak is uh, the immediate slaughter of infected animals. So to, to limit the outbreak, you immediately slaughter infected animals. Then um, to, to provide income to those who had been affected by the slaughter of their animals, the state governments of both Michoacan and Guanajuato set aside contracts for communities that had been affected by the outbreak, uh, that had been truly affected by, or that had been heavily affected by the outbreak, excuse me. But again, neither Guanajuato's nor Michoacan state government actually follows up to make sure that its instructions are being followed because their primary concern is minimize disturbances at the contract distribution sites, minimize the chance of political fallout that will affect us um directly um and, and so you know again local officials they they don't actually follow through they don't actually give contracts to um rural workers who had been affected by the foot and mouth disease outbreak people do complain but then the state government say well we did our part and, and Guanajuato's governor in an address to the state legislature said well You know, my efforts were, you know, undermined by, you know, callous um, local officials who disregarded the instructions. So not interfering, it it, it saved state governments from political fallout, but also in instances of corruption, it gave state governments the rhetorical moral high ground. You know, governors could claim, well, we did our part. It's not, you know, my fault that our instructions weren't uh, followed.
1: So in the middle chapters of this book, you shift focus to aspiring braceros and explore what it is that motivated them to seek these contracts. Um, And among other factors that you've already mentioned, religious activism, religious movements are, are one of them. So can you talk to us a bit more about this relationship between the church and the state in these years and connect this to braceros?
0: Yes. So, um... So, so the five states that I examine in the book: Aguascalientes, Guanajuato, Jalisco, Michoacan, and then particularly the regions of those states that fall within the Bajio. And again, um, just to just to refresh everyone's memory, this is the contiguous lands of southern Guanajuato, northern Michoacan, northeastern Jalisco, southwestern Aguascalientes, and southern Zacatecas. Um, these, so this uh, this was the region where popular demand for contracts was highest. So the five states um, within Mexico, popular demand for contracts was highest in those five states. And within those five states, popular demand for contracts was highest within this region. Um, About two thirds of the nearly 3,000 written contract requests that I examined were from um, the Bajío. And one of the factors that influenced demand was the continuation of these religious political conflicts. So the Bajio during the 1920s and the 1930s was the epicenter, was an epicenter of conservative Catholic resistance to revolutionary policies. So like anti-clerical policies, for example, policies that aim to limit the number of priests um, that could be active in jurisdictions. Um, the revolutionary land redistribution, and and the way that revolutionary land redistribution worked is that private estates were expropriated, they were divided into individual use parcels, and then agrarian reform beneficiaries received use rights, but not ownership of the parcels. Uh, So that was something that conservative Catholics opposed. And also they opposed um, secular public education. Um, and, and one of the goals of the secular public education system of the 1920s and the 1930s, one of the stated goals was to, quote, defanaticize, end quote, um, Catholics. Um, so those three policies drew a lot of opposition from conservative Catholics. And one of the reasons why the Bajio emerged as, the, as one of the epicenters was because the churches institutional presence in that region dated back to the colonial period. Um, so it dated back to the colonial period through parishes, through convents, monasteries, missionary colleges. Um, and the church was one of the few institutions in this region that survived the turmoil of the 19th century. So you know, independence in the 19th century uh, in the and the early 19th century, excuse me, and then uh, the liberal conservative civil wars of the middle decades of the 19th century. Um, And and so the church had a lot of institutional prestige in this region. It also had a lot of social prestige in this region um, as well. And the Catholicism that was and is practiced in the Vajio, it's a very Hispanic Catholicism. Um, And what I mean by that is that Unlike other regions of Mexico, like say, for example, the Valley of Mexico or Oaxaca, um, Chiapas, the, the Catholicism practice in the Bajío does not demonstrate as many overt signs um, of, of pre-Hispanic indigenous influences. Um, the Bajío was a region that had a that didn't have that was not densely settled by indigenous peoples prior to the arrival of the Spanish in the 16th century. Uh, And so the Bajio was primarily settled by Spanish immigrants during the colonial period, but also by Hispanized indigenous converts. Uh, And so these are indigenous peoples, um, many of whom had um, been allies of the Spaniards during the fight against the Mexica, the Aztecs, who then converted to Catholicism and were then rewarded with lands um, in the Bajio for their services. So it's a very his not not entirely um hispanic but it's a very hispanic catholicism and a catholicism that is very or very sensitive to the dictates of the vatican very sensitive to ultramontane um catholicism and so as a result of that hispanic catholic tradition in the late 19th early 20th century when social catholicism emerged and social catholicism is a doctrine that acknowledges the ills of capitalist production. So it acknowledges that capitalist production leads to income inequality, that it leads to the abuse of workers by their employers. But social Catholicism rejects the Marxist argument that class conflict is what is needed to make more egalitarian society. Social Catholicism argues that cooperation between employers and workers and the respect for private property rights is what will lead to more harmonious and egalitarian societies. Um, and so that really resonated in this region that was already sensitive to the dictates of the Vatican, but also in this in a region where small to mid-sized agricultural states, known as ranchos, um, were the predominant form of of land tenure. Um, So in some of these municipalities, in some Bajío municipalities, the ratio of ranchos of small to mid-sized, the ratio, excuse me, of haciendas, of large estates, to ranchos small to mid-sized estates, or um, excuse me, I'm sorry, I I, I got my ratios wrong. The ratio of ranchos, small to mid-sized estates, to haciendas, large estates, is something like 600 to 2. Um, And and so you have a lot of private property owners in this region. And and so in the 1920s and the 1930s, when you have revolutionary governments who are moving against the church, but also moving against private property, that leads to conflict. Um, That leads to, to the Cristero Wars of the 1920s and the 1930s. And, and then what I found is that those conflicts at the community level, they lingered on into the 1940s, the 1950s, and the 1960s.
1: So a term that's important to understanding these Mexican land reforms, which you've already talked about, um, in the post-revolutionary era, um, is the ejido and the related term ejidatario. And can you connect... Maybe explain a little bit more about what these terms mean and and connect them to the fact that many ejidatarios wanted to be braceros.
0: Yes. So um, ejido, um, in in older Spanish, ejido just means um, the common use lands of a community. So a community's common use lands. In the context of revolutionary Mexico, an ejido is an agrarian reform community. So an ejido is a community that has benefited from the agrarian reform, that has received expropriate that has received access to expropriated and redistributed lands. And ejidatarios um, were the, the rural workers, the campesinos, who received use rights to these lands. And so the way that it worked and and you know during the nineteen tens, during the 1920s, there were many debates among revolutionary leaders, among revolutionary officials as to what the best type of land redistribution or what the ideal for land redistribution should be. Um, should you just should you just return lands to communities and let each community decide individually? Should you do a more, 19th century liberal style agrarian reform where you just break up large estates into small individually owned parcels? Um, do you do you aim for collectivization? There were revolutionary leaders, revolutionary officials who believed that collectivization um, was, was the key, that that was how land redistribution should be per, pursued. Ultimately, all of those ideas influenced the, the adoption of the ejido as the most prevalent form of land redistribution in Mexico. So the way that it worked is that interested communities would petition for lands. After a community filed its petition, um, survey engineers would arrive to determine which of the nearby estates um, were eligible for expropriation. Um, and, and small estates, usually estates that were small or that had fewer than Three hundred hectares, which I think is approximately six hundred acres or so, um, those were generally exempt from expropriation. So survey engineers would go; they would survey the lands, and the lands that um, or communities were eligible to receive lands within a seven-kilometer radius. Um, and, And that rule was put in place to make sure that 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 the ejidatarios, the agrarian reform beneficiaries wouldn't have to travel too far um, to, to reach their holdings. So the lands were surveyed. Um, once it was determined which lands um, were eligible for expropriation, those boundaries would be set. So it's external boundaries, uh, but also the, the internal boundaries of any of, of the individual use parcels and And also any um, livestock grazing or or forest lands that would be dedicated for for communal use. Um and then the the size of individual use parcels um, was determined by whether or not they had access to to irrigation water or if they only had access to seasonal um, rainwater. Um, and, and so, um, as I recall, if yeah, if if the parcel had access to seasonal rainwater, Excuse me. It could measure, I believe, four or five hectares, Um, and then if it had access to irrigation water, eight or so hectares. Um, And and so that, you know, those size limits, then you know, I mean, that set a finite number of parcels. So it's not like the the boundary or the external boundaries were set, and then they asked, okay, well, how many people live in this community who are eligible? To become ejidatarios, oh, it's 50, so we'll divide this into 50 individual use parcels. But in that community, it's 200, so we'll divide it into 200 individual use parcels. No, um, the size of the parcels and the number of the parcels was determined by the quality of the lands, whether or not they had access to irrigation water, whether or not they had access to seasonal rainwater. Um, and, and so what ends up happening is so, you know, with the seven kilometer radius, um, that's it. Whatever is within seven kilometers, that's what you have access to. But, you know, you recall, I said a few minutes ago that in the Bajío, the small to mid-sized estates greatly outnumber the large estates. So there are haciendas that are eligible for expropriation, but there's also a significant number of properties that by law cannot be touched. Um, And, and so already there are limits on the lands that can be expropriated. And then the the rules that determine the size of the parcels places limits on that as well. So what ends up happening, particularly early on in the Bracero program, is that you see ejidatarios or, or you see people who want to be braceros who are eligible to be agrarian reform beneficiaries. They're eligible to be ejidatarios. But there are not enough parcels in their ejido to satisfy their needs. Um, they they were left out, um, and then the, the the parcels were assigned by a random drawing, and, and so you know it, it it was luck. If you're in a community where there are more ejidatarios than parcels, uh, the luck of the draw quite literally determined if you were going to have access to the ejido's lands, and so you have a lot of. People who are eligible to become ejidatarios who then, um, you know, decide that they want to become braceros because, you know, the way that the rules are set, that they prevent them uh, from accessing land. At the same time, you also have ejidatarios who are dealing with the fact that the lands that they've been assigned aren't very good lands, and particularly. A lot of the hidatarios who live in communities that either have, that either only have, or the majority of their lands only have access to seasonal rainwater. Well, if there are drought cycles, they're out of luck. Um, There's nothing they can do, and so yes, they've received lands, but the lands they've received aren't very good quality lands, and so during drought cycles, during down years, they they decide that their best option excuse me, is migrating to the United States. But again, uh, the the quality of their lands or the lack of their lands, um, the reason that they are landless or are having to deal with low quality lands is because of the way that the land redistribution process was structured.
1: So moving back to the government officials, um, let's look now at the local, the municipal level. Um, and you explain how these officials end up enjoying, you know, almost complete latitude over distributing bracero contracts. So how do they end up selecting the many people who might have a reason to want to migrate to the United States? What does that process look like on the ground?
0: It is a process that looks, uh, for, from, the, from the point of view of aspiring braceros, it's a process that looks very, very corrupt. Um, Because both the federal and state governments, because they have little to no interest in exercising oversight, the municipal officials, the ones who actually have the power to choose who will receive a contract, they have free reign. Uh, And without any threat of any sanction, any punishment for their malfeasance, their priority when they're distributing contracts is by and large, okay, how can this help me? as a municipal official? How will this benefit me? And and so you see financial corruption almost immediately. You see allegations that municipal officials are exchanging contracts for bribes. Um, And by the time you get to the 1960s, um, some municipal officials are alleged to have pocketed hundreds of thousands of pesos worth of bribes um, from aspiring braceros. So you have I guess, for lack of a better term, you have relatively straightforward corruption, but you have a, a, a politicized corruption as well. And here you see another political dimension of the Braceto program: is that many of these municipal officials, they're using they're they're using local political considerations to determine who is going to get contracts or who is not. Um, I'm going to give contracts to my local allies. I'm going to freeze my local rivals out um, uh, of the Bracero program. Um, You know, something that will benefit me politically within just the the local political context. And oftentimes those political considerations were wrapped up in those ongoing religious local political tensions. Um, So, for example, in one community in Michoacán, in the community of Purwandiro during the mid-1940s, um, conservative Catholic partisans who were affiliated with the Unión Nacional Sinarquista, the UNS, uh, a conservative Catholic opposition, um, and many members of the UNS were former cristeros. They, uh, they formed an alliance with the local municipal president in Purwandiro. In fact, many members of the UNS um, won seats uh, on the local ayuntamiento, the local municipal council. And so the municipal president, working with his allies in the UNS, declared that only members of the UNS will be allowed to migrate as braceros. Only UNS members will be given uh, bracero contracts. And so if you wanted to be a bracero, you had to join the UNS. At least if you wanted to be a bracero from Puruandiro, you had to join um, the UNS. About 10 years, actually, uh, a few years after that, in 1952, in 1952 in Mexico, Um, was a presidential election year. Um, In in Irapuato, uh, in Guanajuato, uh, the municipal president there was a member of the ruling party, uh, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, the PRI. But that municipal president, in order to make sure that members of the UNS wouldn't be um, in Mexico during the election, wouldn't possibly um, interfere uh, with the electoral process, That municipal president made sure that members of the UNS were given Bracero contracts, but that was so that they would be out of the country during uh, the presidential election. And in Mexico, presidential elections generally happen during the summer months, usually uh, in June and July, um, which is, of course, when there is a lot of agricultural work being done in the United States. And so that municipal president, it was a calculated move to remove uh, members of the UNS so that they wouldn't be able to interfere um, in, in the electoral process as well, and there's also I also found evidence that this might this might have actually been part of a larger quid pro quo agreement that basically established a level of peace between local members of the UNS um, and the municipal government. Um, but again, f- for these municipal officials, it's always how is the bracero selection process going to benefit? Me either financially or politically. Um, municipal presidents who actually took the genuine needs uh, of their constituents, who wanted to be braceros at hand, they seem to be the exception rather than the rule. There were some um, who appeared to have genuine, who appeared who wrote um, to state governments to ask for contracts, who seemed to be genu- who seemed to genuinely care that. Okay, you know. Um, there was a flood in my community. Um, the local maize harvest was washed out because of the flood. Please send us some contracts or you know things of that nature. But municipal officials like that, they seem to be the exception. The rule from municipal officials is, how is this going to benefit me? Um, and so in many instances, the folks who came to the U.S. as braceros they came because they had paid a bribe for their contracts or, you know, because um, it, it benefited their local municipal government politically to send them to the United States. And th- this political and financial corruption at the, at the local level, it did influence undocumented migration during the years of the Bracero program um, because there were um, Mexican workers who decided to migrate Um, as undocumented workers, and um, for example, they they decided to to hire the services of a coyote, and and coyote in Mexican Spanish is a term uh, for somebody who helps get undocumented migrants across the border into the United States. Uh, There are um, uh, Mexican workers who said, you know, paying a coyote was essentially the same as paying the municipal president, So, you know, we would rather go to a coyote, we would rather enter the U.S. as undocumented workers, rather than deal um, with the municipal government.
1: This is a book that is very much rooted in Mexican history, both in terms of addressing some of the most important processes uh, going on in the 20th century, but it's also very much participating in some of the most active historiographical debates of the last decade. Um, saying that, I also noticed that you reference Mexico-U.S. relations in this book, and I sense that the order that you've given, putting Mexico first, is intentional. So could you pinpoint for us what your work illuminates about the relationship between Mexico and the United States?
0: Um, I I think one of the things that it illuminates is, well, I, I do think that I think it reinforces something that other works. And so, for example, um, you know, transnational works like the works of uh, or, or works of the transnational focus, for example, the works of Deborah Cohen, uh, Mireya Loza, uh, I'm also thinking about the works of Alexandra Delano. So I think it reinforces that, particularly when it came to the bilateral negotiations between the United States and Mexico, whenever the terms of the agreement that authorized the Bracero program were renewed. The United States did often have the negotiating um, leverage, um, uh, and so, and oftentimes, the United States did behave unilaterally in order to make sure that it secured provisions um, that that it wanted um, uh, for uh, that it wanted to secure in the agreement. So, I think it reinforces that um, as well. I think one of the things, though, that I contribute, and particularly um, in, in looking at the the Mexico-U.S. relationship, and I think one of the things that I, I, I'm able to highlight more is that it's not. I mean, yes, the U.S. did often have the negotiation leverage during the negotiations. Yes, the U.S. did behave unilaterally, um, but at least in terms of the negotiations, Mexico wasn't a bystander, and and, and many times the Mexican government you know, when it made these concessions to unilateral pressure from the United States, Mexican officials knew that there was going to be some benefit for them as well. Um, It was, in other words, one of the things that I found is that many times Mexican officials were willing to pay the price that the United States exacted because, okay, if this is the cost of doing business, this is the cost of doing business. So, you know, it's not like a woe is me story or you know the Mexican government just being pushed around and so for example um in uh in 1954 uh the U.S. government launched a a mass deportation campaign um this is something that I talk about in the book and and this is a deportation campaign and, and I apologize because um the, the, the campaign was named after a derogatory term that's often used um, to describe undocumented immigrants. but the, the name of the operation was Operation Wetback. Um, I, I touch upon it briefly in the book. Um, scholars like May Nye um, and Adam Goodman um, ha- have talked about this um, mass deportation campaign as well. And so there's a mass deportation campaign 1954. It relied on workplace raids, it relied on publicity, to pressure. Um, undocumented immigrants to leave the United States. Um, the workplace raids largely focus on the agricultural regions of California and Texas, but it also focused in large cities like Los Angeles, um, Chicago, um, San Francisco. And um, it, it did lead to calamity. It, it led to, to several deaths uh, of um, undocumented immigrants who were quite literally left in the desert, uh, a, a, and would die of sunstroke. But one of the things that I found is that uh, at the time, the president of Mexico was Adolfo Ruiz Cortines, um, and in his address to the state legislature, he actually lauded the United States. Um, he he pray, you know he he praised their measures because he said this will um, this will reduce undocumented migration, um, and, and this will ensure that most of them, that you know Mexico U.S. migration is channeled through, um, through the Bracero program. So yes, the U S was exacting unilateral pressure, but you know, the the Mexican government was often willing. That's one of the things that I find the Mexican government was often willing to pay the price that the U S exacted in order to keep this authorized channel for migrants, um, to leave Mexico, to enter the United States in order to keep that open. Mexico was more than willing to pay the price that the U S exacted.
1: Could you talk to us about how this work connects to issues going on in the present and maybe speak as well about what you're working on lately now that this book is out?
0: Yeah, I I think, you know, it connects to the present in a way only because this is such a unique moment in the history of Mexico-U.S. migration. Um, The years of the Bracero program are the only years when there is a formal agreement. And I want to stress formal agreement because there have been a lot of Informal arrangements between the Mexican and U.S. governments regarding migration. But this is the only time that there is a formal agreement that allows that that specifically favors Mexican workers to enter the United States. And so, you know, when you think about particularly the policies of the last um, 20 years or so, if you go back um, to the Clinton administration, um, when you really do begin to see the militarization of the border um you do begin to see, you know, a significant rise in the number um, of of deportations, both um, voluntary, quote unquote, voluntary departures, um, but also, you know, uh, deportations that follow a formal deportation hearing, you know, obviously that that number continued through the George W. Bush administration during the Obama administration as well. And then, you know, the, the recent Trump administration, and of course, Um, Donald Trump's initial campaign promise was, you know, we're going to build a wall across the entirety of the U.S.-Mexico border and the Mexican government is going to pay for it. So it is a much different moment. And so by the contrast, you can see, you know, how much has changed. Um, But you also see similarities as well. I mean, I, I was just talking a few minutes ago that in, in the middle of the 1950s you have a mass deportation campaign the US government organizes a mass deportation campaign um, to target undocumented workers this is a mass deportation campaign um, that the Mexican government welcomed um you can see echoes with some of the agreements between the u.s and Mexican government today um I, and I mean the context is different because a lot of the discussion currently right now is about immigrants from, immigrants and refugees uh, from Central America, um, from, from the Caribbean, from Northern South America, particularly Venezuela, but, you know, preventing their entry into the United States and, and with the cooperation of the Mexican government. And so, you know, so, so there are stark similarities, stark differences, but you see some stark similarities um, uh, as well. And so, yes, the, the pace of militarization of the border Um, The the pace uh, of deportations of undocumented immigrants, that's something that really begins to accelerate um, during the Clinton administration. But, you know, the the roots go back to the years of the Bracero program. So you see those differences and you see those similarities. And and there's something else. And this is something that I touch upon um, in the conclusion of the book. Uh, Mexico's current president, uh, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, Um, He is on record as saying that he would like to revive the Bracero program or that he would like to revive an initiative similar to the Bracero program. So an agreement that would specifically favor Mexican workers who want to work in the United States on a seasonal basis. Um, Lopez Obrador has also said that he would, that that it would probably be good to include Central American nations. Um, And I think, I, I can't remember if he's explicitly said this. But I believe he's mostly referring to Guatemala, um, El Salvador, and Honduras. Uh, but I'm not sure if he's ever explicitly said which Central American nations. But, you know, again, have this have this revived guest worker program. Although, you know, the Biden administration sort of, you know, signaled that, well, you know, we'll discuss it. But like there's been no genuine progress, or at least no genuine public progress. But, you know. This is something that, you know, Mexican governments still invoke, like the, the contemporary Mexican federal government still invokes this um, as a possible model um, to follow as we move, you know, as we're now, you know, we're now 80 plus years um, since the Bracero program began. And so, you know, you, you still see the echoes. And this is something that, you know, at, at least again, publicly on record, the contempt the the current Mexican federal administration would like to revive um, in some way, shape, or form. Um, And and so those echoes are there. And I think there is still relevance, very, very significant relevance um, to to what we're seeing today um, in in issues of migration, not just Mexico-US migration, but Central America-US migration, Caribbean-US migration, South America-US migration as well, Again, particularly if you look at how Mexico and the United States have been cooperating um, to limit entries into the United States. Um, as for what I'm working on now, um, I, I'm kind of changing tracks a, a little bit. Um, th- there is a part of me that's curious as to how the Bracero program. I do still have some curiosity as to how the Bracero program worked in other regions. Um, I've particularly been interested in Oaxaca, or, or I have an interest, maybe at some point, in in, in looking into how the Bracero program worked um, in Oaxaca, a state in southern Mexico, but also sent a significant number of braceros to the United States, and that began sending more immigrants to the U.S. Um, in the late 20th and the early 21st centuries. Uh, but my next larger project, um, I'd actually, uh, I'm beginning to look at social social welfare policy, and actually childhood development policy um, in the 60, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And actually, um, it did grow out of a source that I cite um, in the book. Um, one of the sources I cite in the book, this is a, a request for contracts. Um, it was sent by a woman um, from Michoacan um, who was the director of the school breakfast program um, in her in her local community, and this is in the 1960s. Um, and when I when I first read that document, and and you know, it, it triggered a memory um, because I remembered that my mom um, talked about how her younger siblings, uh, when they were in school, um, that they took part in a school breakfast program um, that my maternal grandmother and my maternal great grandmother, um, you know, helped prepare food for. And then, you know, I see this, you know, document, and this is, you know, you know, a woman, a local woman who's leading this program. And, you know, it started getting me thinking, I'm like, oh, okay, so there's a school breakfast program. And, you know, you know, here, you know, in this document that I cited, the director of the program in this community was a woman, you know, my mother remembers that, you know, her mother and her grandmother, you know, played a big role in preparing breakfast for the school breakfast program in my family's hometown. And so, you know, I started doing um, a a little bit of digging uh, through online uh, newspaper databases. And and I found that the school breakfast program, it it began in 1959 in Mexico City. Um, And so it begins in 1959 in Mexico City um, as a project that was directed by um, Eva Samano de López Mateos, who was Mexico's first lady um, at the time. She was the wife of President Adolfo López Mateos. And then that school breakfast program went national in 1961. Um, and not just um, in urban centers, but in rural areas as well. Rural areas like the one where my family um, is originally from. And it did seem like women had a, a big role in administering this program. Um, and then again, you know, just searching through, um, you know, online, you know, newspapers that are available online. I haven't done much archival research um, since the pandemic began, uh, three years ago. Um, but then another thing that I found is that in the 1970s, um, this, the agency that administered, um, the school breakfast program was merged with another agency, um, to form, uh, the Sistema Nacional de Desarrollo Integral de la Familia, the National System for Integral Family Development, or the SNdif. Um, it's usually just known as the DF. Um, but the DEEF, and this is a, a, an initiative that provides um, assistance to low-income families with young children. And, and one of the hallmarks of this program is usually providing a box of staples like beans, rice, cooking oil, sugar um, to families with low-income children. So um, this is a program that's still active today. Um, and so this social service program survived uh, the neoliberal reforms of the 1980s of the 1990s when Mexico's federal government reduced its spending on social services. yet this program um, survived. And so I'm very curious now as to, you know how this program started, a program that was that begins in the cities and then was exported into the Mexican countryside, um, a program that appears to have given women an opportunity, to engage directly in local politics as local community leaders, and, and a program that is still not in the exact same way that it was in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, uh, but a program that is still active even after the neoliberal reforms of the late 20th and early 21st century. So that's that's what I'm looking at now. And again, it all grew out of this, this one document that I cite in the book. <laughs>
1: That sounds absolutely fascinating. So um, you've got at least one eager reader waiting for it. (laughs) So today we've been speaking with Alberto Garcia about his book, Abandoning Their Beloved Land, The Politics of Bracero Migration in Mexico. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alberto. Uh,
0: Thank you, Rachel.